Psalm 85, starting at verse 4 to verse 7. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not, you yourself, revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen. Well, I chose this text as our text this morning and for tonight because I did want to talk about God's uh, mercy in revival and reformation. In the middle of this psalm, you'll note that the psalmist petitions God for restoration. <coughs> he calls the Lord, O God of our salvation. He is asking God to show spiritual renewal and mercy and grace. He's asking that God would uh, cease from his chastening and might turn the people of God back towards the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that he asks God in his presence, will you be angry with us? He recognizes that they are under a judgment from God. They recognize that the Lord has been displeased with his people and that that displeasure has shown up in very palpable ways, ways that are evident to many. And the psalmist here is crying out to God, how long will there be this chastening, this backsliding, uh, this uh, forsaking of the covenant of God? Will, will God allow the people of God to backslide forever? Uh, will the church never again see uh, her former days of glory that may have been known uh, in the day, this is a, a psalm of Korah, uh, so this would have been a latter psalm, but will they not know something of the, the reviving influence that was known in David's day, in Solomon's day, in those halcyon days uh, of early Israel? He's saying, will you not yourself revive us again? He's asking the Holy Spirit to bring about the work of regeneration and the work of renewal. And he says that your people may rejoice in you, that you would be honored, O Lord, that you would be glorified. And so today I want to talk somewhat thematically. This is not so much an expositional sermon on these verses, but rather to think thematically together that this portion of this psalm might apply to our own prayer life uh, in our desire to see Jesus Christ honored and glorified and to see the church revived. The church, the Reformation, was a work of God's Spirit. You have to understand this, and this is my first point, revive. He asks here, will you not yourself revive us again? So we have to understand that the Reformation, first and foremost, was a work of the Holy Spirit. It was not politically uh, motivated primarily. Now, it had political implications many times, um, but it was not, first and foremost, a political movement. Uh, it was not a mere social movement. It was not merely an economic movement, though social um, causes were at work in God's providence. Uh, no one can doubt that uh, the, the invention of the printing press, you know, 
was a, a means for furthering the, the cause of the Reformation, uh, just as the internet today is, is a means of reaching uh, people who otherwise would not have a, a theological education. Many people are, and I'll speak to this further down the road, but are getting a, a, a theological education that would not formally have been available to them had it not been for the internet, had it not been for computer chips, had it not been for thumbnail drives, that now we can easily ship uh, overseas and people simply plug it into their computer and now can receive instruction uh, and training. One of the great needs of the church is for that kind of instruction. So the Reformation was a, a work of God's spirit. And if there is to be true Reformation, it must first be a work of the Holy Spirit in our own country here. It is the work of God and not of men. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 6, that that which is born of flesh is but what? Mere flesh. That which is flesh is flesh. The kingdom of God, John chapter 1, verse 13. The kingdom of God is not of flesh, Jesus says. It is not of blood. That is, it's not something that just is inherited genetically. Or it is not, he says, the mere will of man. Well, then what is the kingdom of God? If it is not of flesh, it is not of inheritance, it is not of the will of men, well, it is by the work of God's Spirit. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. He needed the work of the Holy Spirit if he was to see the kingdom of God. He needed the Holy Spirit to come down. And this is exactly what the church is in need of today. The church is in need of a renewing presence and power of the Spirit of God working in us and through us. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. That is, it's not by uh, might in, in any political sense. It's not by mere human influence. You know, we hear people talking about being an influencer on social media. It's not by might, it's not by influence, it's not by economic heft, but by the Spirit of God. We see how when God moved in times past, the Spirit of the Lord was always at work. You think about when God was doing a new work in delivering his people out of Egypt. What did boys and girls did God first do? Well, God first visited Moses, didn't he? And he, he renewed Moses, and he revived Moses, and he allowed Moses to see the burning bush and to hear the voice from the burning bush and to hear God tell Moses, Moses, take the shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. And how did God begin? He began by working in his servant Moses. He began working in the church, the visible church. And Moses was sent to preach the word of God to Pharaoh, to let my people go. You could move on further in the history of Israel, and you see the period of the judges. And the, the judges was that period where you had this kind of cyclical time in the life of the church in old Israel, where you had seasons of blessing and prosperity and obedience, and then there would be backsliding and decline, and God would bring judgments on them and he would raise up adversaries outside of Israel and the people would cry out to the Lord when they were oppressed 
And God would send his spirit, and his spirit would come upon one of their own, a judge, and, and like Gideon or Samson, boys and girls. And the spirit of God would be on these judges, and these judges would provide deliverance for the people of God. Later in Israel's history, they, when, um, the, when God was bringing Israel to a point of realizing more and more about the person of the Messiah, God gave them a king. And the spirit of the Lord, we are told, was on Saul, and then later on David and Solomon. What we see in Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. That Moses and the judges and Saul and David and Solomon and the prophets, they were, they were but types pointing us to the one who would be the anointed one. That's what uh, Messiah means. That's what Christ means. Christ, uh, young people, is not Jesus' last name. That's his title. He is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. So that the spirit of God was resting upon Christ so that Christ would bring about what was truly needed for the people of God. And that Jesus Christ would live a holy life and die as a substitute on the cross and then be raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he would give the spirit of, of the Lord to the church. The spirit of God would be poured out upon us. And that's the age in which we live now for these last 2,000 years we have been uh, in that period of time where the Spirit has been given because Christ, our King, has been uh, ascended, has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So how does God now operate? Well, as the psalmist says here, he says, revive us again. Now the Lord often, when he would bring revival, would often be through primarily those who were types of Christ. But as the high school Sunday school class was considering even this morning. Now in Jesus Christ, remember Jesus has said, greater work shall you do. Speaking to his disciples. Meaning this, not that they were greater than Jesus, but that through the outpouring of the Spirit of God, now the church would begin to do greater things than even the miracles that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. You think about how Jesus, by the end of three years, he essentially has, what, 120 people in an upper room, doesn't he? And then suddenly Peter, in one single sermon, now has a congregation of 2,120 people. How did that happen? Well, because of the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, poured out the Spirit upon his church. So what do we need here? Well, what we need is the work of the Spirit to revive us again. But the revival that we know is a greater revival than even the Old Testament saints knew. They knew something of the trickling of the Spirit. But now that Jesus Christ has come and he has ascended, you and I live in this great age of privilege where the Spirit has been given in abundance. And so we have an opportunity here that even Old Testament saints did not, and that is that we might be filled with the Spirit of Christ himself, that we might be filled as ordinary people, ordinary men and women, boys and girls, not just a, a, a lone figure filled with the Spirit of God, but in Jesus Christ, the Spirit has been given 
You remember how someone came to Moses and said, oh, Moses, there are a couple guys who didn't show up to the elders' meeting, and they're prophesying in the camp. And what was Moses' response? He said, oh, that all of God's people would prophesy. Meaning what? That all of God's people would experience the Holy Spirit. And yet that, that wish of Moses is realized in Jesus Christ. So as we think about the Reformation and, and, and we, we think about our needs for today, the first thing that we see by way of application is our need for a Spirit-filled life. The Spirit to fill us. Now how do you and I experience more of the Holy Spirit? How do you and I receive more of the Spirit? Well, what we're doing right now is one of those means through the preaching of the Word. The, the Spirit is given through the Word and the sacraments and prayer and godly fellowship. Things such as these are the means by which God often uses to bring us revival. So, for example, let me ask you this question. How much Scripture is in your life? You want more of the Holy Spirit? Well, how about reading more of the Bible? You want to feel closer to God, have greater communion with God, boys and girls? Well, then how about meditating on God's Word, opening your Bible, without having to have mom or dad ask you and prompt you? Have you read your Bible today? To take it up yourself and say, Lord, show me yourself in the, in the Scriptures today. Help me as I read these chapters to know you and to be known by you and may your Holy Spirit work in my life. You want more of the Spirit of God? Well, fill yourself more with the Word of God. One of the evidences of the Spirit of God, we are told in two of Paul's letters, is the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, that One of the test ways that we testify that the Spirit of God is working within us is that the believers are speaking to one another in the Word of God, in the words of God. So the Spirit primarily uses His Word and His sacraments and prayer. So let me ask you, how is your own personal Scripture reading going? How is your Scripture reading going as a family, as a household, as a home? Is there scripture reading in the school? Is there scripture reading um, in informal situations? Social, what Edwards called social religion. Social religion. That's that, that's that holy hanging out time with one another, uh, as Nathan Trice, I think, has called it. But the Reformation 500 years ago was scripture-saturated. One of the reasons that the Reformation was the Reformation compared to what was going in Roman, on in Roman Catholicism was that the, the Reformation brought the light of the Bible to bear on all of life. That formally, the, the people, even the priests, you have to understand, even the ministers prior to the Reformation were ignorant of Scripture. You realize that many of those priests, that was a mere political appointment. You do know that, don't you? That, it was, that the priests often were appointed because they knew the bishop, and the bishop knew the king. So it, in many ways, it was just a mere political appointment. It had nothing to do with how well they knew the Bible. In fact, many of them didn't know the Bible at all. They were in complete ignorance, and, ignorance, and, and so that they would just 
mumble through the ceremonies, things that which they didn't even themselves fully understand. And, and, uh, and what the Reformation did was it said, this is, this is nonsense. That we are to be a scripture-bound people, saturated with the scripture. And, and the first thing that God often does um, was to raise up men who knew the Bible, to teach the Bible. You know, the, the argument that Rome made against John Calvin was, you know, you can't get rid of these idols. You can't get rid of these, uh, these paintings in the, in the sanctuaries because how will the ignorant people of God know what the New Testament teaches? And Calvin's response was quite simple. He says, why are the people ignorant under your ministry? If you would do your job and teach and preach the scriptures, your people wouldn't need the pictures and the idols to know the stories of the Bible. They would know them because they were taught them. You know, there was the goal uh, of the Reformation that every plowboy would be able to read the Bible for himself. Every plowboy would be able, even while plowing the fields, to have his Bible even set out in front of him. You see that? You realize that was illegal prior to the Reformation. To have the scriptures in your own language and to have a copy of the scriptures in your own home, that was illegal. Uh, the church, and when I say the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, was resistant to the people of God having the scriptures and knowing them. Often the scriptures were read and, and preached in Latin, which was the language of the few, the educated. And the, the uh, reformers said, no, the, the Bible needs to be translated into the vernacular language. Martin Luther, one of the first things he did was he, when he was in seclusion, was he translated the Bible into German. In fact, uh, people who know German have said that the, the language of, of Germany today has is, is got Martin Luther's stamp on it because Martin Luther was the one who translated the primary book of Germany in, and, and that uh, the, his word choices and vocabulary that he used uh, are with the, the Germans to this day. Their language is influenced by the Reformation. You have men like Huss and Wycliffe who were lights before the Reformation trying to get the scriptures into the hands of God's people here. So you need to realize what a great privilege you have. And Jesus has said to whom much is given, much is required of you. So I'm going to ask you, do you have a Bible reading plan? What's your plan to read the scriptures at home? Do you have a how do you know you're reading all of Scripture? Um, what, what, is your, what, are, what are your goals for Bible reading for you, for your family? You know, you have your children for about 18 years, and, they're, and then they got to go. So what, what's your plan with, the, with your kids knowing the Scriptures? How much Scripture are you planning to cover with them? before they take wings. What about heads of homes here? Are you uh, fathers, husbands, reading the scriptures 
Are you having family time where you read the Bible, you talk about it, you discuss what the apostles are saying or discuss the narratives in the Old Testament? And what about us as a church? Are we making the most of our Lord's Day Sabbaths? I fear many of us are not. I know sometimes I'm guilty of it. Um, I could make better use of the Sabbath, I think, especially after the evening service. Uh, We need more of the Sabbath and make better use of the Sabbath. We need to encourage our evangelical friends who attend other churches to make better use of the Sabbaths. What are the Sabbaths? The Sabbaths are God's holy vacation for us. They're gifts. They're a foretaste of heaven and glory. They're they're a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like, and they're opportunities for us where we get to say, I don't have to worry about work. I don't have to worry about bills. I don't have to worry about fixing anything in my house. I don't have to worry about the do list. God has said, think uh, about none of that. And, And now you have this opportunity to feast on the Bible. And yet too often Christians say, ah, but I'd rather watch the football game. Or I'd rather get online and look what's going on in social media. I wonder how many times we would have those from former generations, maybe from the times of the Reformation, shake their heads at us and say, oh, if you only knew (laughs) what I would have given to be able to read my Bible on Sunday. Do you know what it cost me? Do you know what it cost my family to get a Bible in the vernacular, they'd say? And they don't mean that just financially. What it costs them sometimes in blood. You know, what it costs businessmen at the risk of their own lives to smuggle Bibles into other countries um, as a part of their trade. Uh, We need to, I think, think about what a privilege it is to have the scriptures. You know, there was a famous sermon preached by a Puritan minister, and the Puritan minister began a dialogue between the people of God and God himself, and he played both roles. And as God, he said, I'm going to take your Bible away from you. You're evidently not using it. And the people of God, no, please, Lord, you know, don't take away our, our Bibles. We, we promise we, we'll reform ourselves. We'll reform our ways. No, no, I'm going to take them away. You, you have no love for the scriptures. And I'm going to remove them from your midst. And he has this dialogue, great dialogue, going back and forth between God and his people. Our culture and our community uh, need Bible studies and discussions. You've heard me many times talk about, you know, that um, Bob Godfrey, who was former president of Westminster Seminary in California, said that right now, he said, South Carolina looks like Southern California used to look when it comes to Sunday night. He said, you realize you who live in the South, and he was speaking as a Californian, he's a native Californian. He says, you people in the South, you realize you look like we used to look now. Where do you think we're headed? If that trend continues, the South is going to look like California, was his point. He says, you can go, he says, South Carolina at Sunday night looks like Southern California used to look. 
no evening church. Lots of churches, no evening worship. No keeping of the Sabbath day. Ah, we got enough scripture in the morning service. That, that, was, that was sufficient. We also um, need scripture nationally and internationally. As I mentioned earlier, uh, there are ministries such as Third Mill that provide seminary-level education to third-world nations now because of the internet and because of technology and thumbnail drives. Um, this is a great blessing that has come about, and I hope it leads to another reformation. You know, it may be that, uh, you know, we're currently sending missionaries to Uganda, and I remember a minister when I was in Uganda many years ago, and I was working with another minister, and that, that minister said, you know, there may come a day when Uganda is sending missionaries to America. You know, we may be doing the work of building the church that our children and great-grandchildren down the line may need because missionaries are having to come over here. We need revival. Reformation was a work of revival, number, number one. Number two, we also are to rejoice. Look at verse six. It says, Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? With revival, we need also joy. And I would suggest that joy is not only a fruit of revival, but it is also the means of promoting reformation. It is not only a fruit of reformation, but joy is a means of reformation. Where do I get that? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 Nehemiah told the people of God during a feast, he says, a holy feast, he said, do not mourn during the feast. They were convicted by their sins, and he said, do not mourn, but look, look to the gospel, look to Christ and the forgiveness of sins found in him. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That is, that joy brings us the means to the energy and the, and the strength to carry out the work of reformation. There are other verses. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. But Psalm 16 verse 11 says, There is fullness of joy in your presence. Ecclesiastes says, Let your heart be glad. Proverbs 17 verse 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. That is, joy adds sweetness to our reforming witness. Miserable Christians are not a good testimony, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The Christian life has a lot of adversity. It has a lot of trials. It has a lot of disappointments, temptations, defections, apostasies, satanic attacks, etc. And we can become overwhelmed if we're not careful, but the joy of the Lord gives us strength to fight the fight of faith. We want to be happy warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be joyful people. So how do we express joy in the Lord? Well, the Bible tells us the singing of psalms and hymns is a means of both uh, venting joy, but also it's a means of stirring up the joy of the Lord within us. That is, when we find ourselves uh, clouded with dark thoughts and heavy worries, 
Sometimes picking up the Psalter or hymnal is a means of getting our mind to focus on something else, on the blessings of God, the joy of God, the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God, the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer, the future glory that is ours, the resurrection that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. There, there is much that can give us perspective in the singing of psalms and hymns in the home. It promotes joy, and it gives us the strength we need. Uh, history says that um, when Martin Luther was discouraged by the, uh, the, what he felt to be the lack of progress in the Reformation in Germany, he said uh, to his colleagues, let us take up Psalm 46, and meaning let's sing Psalm 46, which is the psalm, by the way, where we got that hymn that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our sure help in times of trouble. Uh, though, you know, the world fall apart, yet we were safe in God. And so Luther would turn to the singing of God's praises to strengthen him. And, and that was a man who knew what it was to feel disappointment and discouragement at times. All the satanic attacks that were aimed at him, uh, all the trials and tribulations and the disappointments with those who uh, turned away from Christ. Uh, how did he not get overwhelmed? Well, it was through the singing and praises of God. We also should give thanks to God in prayer. Thanking God in prayer. Remember that the Bible says that with all petitions and thanksgivings, you know, make your requests known to God, that we are to saturate our prayers also with thanksgiving, and that having thanksgiving as a part of our prayer life will help give us the joy that we need to carry on. The Lord has given us uh, great blessings. And sometimes, um, I've shared this with you in years past, but sometimes the sweetest prayer meetings sometimes that I've ever participated in were those where we agreed before the meeting began we weren't going to ask God for anything. And we were going to simply thank God and praise him for all the things that God has done for us and for who he is. And those have been some of the most memorable prayer meetings I've ever participated in in my life. Try it. Try it sometime at home or in your personal <coughs> prayer time. Try it and pray without asking God for anything. And just worship him and thank him and praise him. The joy of the Lord is going to be our strength. And we need strength. The work before us is great. This culture is a mess. We are a wreck, and it's getting worse. As I prayed in the pastoral prayer, we are now beginning to debate very fundamental biological things about what it means to be a human being, a man and a woman. There is so much confusion coming over people. It's like this mist. It's like this judgment uh, of, of um, confusion is coming over people. And, and people, why is it? Well, because we have forsaken Christ and God. And we're being given over to all kinds of ideological insanity. And, and we, uh, we are going to need a whole lot of strength because there's a whole lot of work to be done. And the joy of the Lord is going to help you uh, with that. The joy of the Lord is going to give you the strength that you need 
to do the work of reformation. Now, I want to talk thirdly here about reforming and rebuilding. My third point. We need revival. We need to rejoice. And thirdly, to reform and rebuild. Now, I want to, first of all, say this. Um, I think a lot of American Christians have lost, now I'm not saying us particularly, but I think a lot of broader evangelicals have lost what Ian Murray called the Puritan hope. Now, what's the Puritan hope? The Puritan hope was that Jesus Christ was serious when he said, go disciple the nations <laughs> and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And that it was not an exercise in futility. Now, why do I say this? Well, because a lot of Christians, because of the influence of 19th century dispensationalism, and I think it's waning, and I'm glad to see it waning, good riddance to dispensationalism, but it's still out there in popular Christian culture. And, and the dispensational view was, was that things are just going to get worse and worse and worse for the church, and the only hope for the church is the rapture, to get us out of this place. And, and the world just goes to hell. And that, that, okay, you know, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of good news, but okay, you know, and a lot of people are influenced by this. Now, Jesus, if you read, do yourself a favor, read the high, past, uh, high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus specifically says to the Father, don't take them out of the world. He couldn't have made it more plain. Do not take them, meaning you, the, his people, out of the world. They are to be salt and light, and they are to do the work of evangelism and missions and discipling and reforming <laughs> and teaching and training and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the, the Puritans, I think, as a part of that, they were kind of a, the Puritans, you have to understand, were what we call the second generation reformers. You have what is historically known as the magisterial reformers. That would be Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, Beza. That first generation, mid-16th century, mid-1500s. I think Knox dies in 1572. I don't remember Beza's numbers, but you know, through much of that century. The Puritans kind of came later. They were another generation. You know, all those good Christian books that you enjoy, uh, you know, about you know, how to be a good husband, a good wife, and, you know, that, why, why did the Puritans write on that so much? The reason they did was because they had the luxury to do so, because a lot of the issues um, were dealt with, the, some of the more, shall we say, fundamental issues were dealt with by the previous generations, fighting over justification by faith, and what is the nature of the church and the sacraments. So the Puritans were that second reformation that came about. And, and they had a vision for seeing Jesus Christ transforming the nations. And where did they get this? Were they just optimists? No, they went to the scriptures. And, and they read, for example, in the very next Psalm, Psalm 86. You know, in Psalm 85, he's asking for God to revive the church. And then in the very next Psalm, what do we see? We see in verse 9 the promise that all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. 
So in Psalm 85, you have the petition for God to revive his church. And in the next Psalm, it's, you have the promise that God would build his church through the nations. And that all the nations, and we see this in Revelation 7, 9, when at, at the end of history, we see that John saw heaven and he saw, behold, a great multitude that he could not number. The elect are not few, they are not small. It's not like, you know, 10% uh, of us got in. He saw, I saw a great number of people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I think a lot of evangelicals have very small little vision for the work of Reformation. And if we can just kind of get out of this world by the skin of our teeth and just cling to whatever faith we have left, ah, oh, that'd be great. And that's not the way the Puritans looked at it. As we've seen from previous Thanksgiving sermons, the pilgrims who came here, we are, we are told by Winthrop and Bradford that they desired to be what? Seen as nothing but stones, stepping stones, for future generations to come behind them and build upon the work that they had done. Why were they going to a new world? They were seeking a better reformation of the church. They were seeking to be able to bring uh, the kingdom of God to this continent. And, and their vision wasn't, well, we're just trying to get away from everybody and, and until we get taken out of this place. He said, they said specifically in their writings, we are here because we want future generations coming after us to build on the work that we've done here. That's the kind of vision where you can lose 50% of your people that first winter and keep going. That's the kind of vision that will make, allow you to make those kind of sacrifices. When you, have a, when you have a vision for the kingdom of Christ prevailing. Now, this does not minimize their view of suffering. The Puritans had a very high view of suffering. I'm not trying to give you some kind of early 20th century secularized version of post-millennialism uh, you know, that was destroyed in World War I. But we're talking about a gospel-centered worldview that nevertheless, as the Puritans said, through suffering we conquer. They acknowledge the reality of a fallen world. They acknowledge the awfulness of, of sin and what the consequences of that have brought us into this tremendous ruin. They recognize satanic opposition, but yet through it all, they said we believe that Jesus Christ will still prevail through our sorrow and our suffering and our tears and our imprisonments, that Jesus Christ will build his church and his kingdom, and it will be a glorious kingdom. We are called to disciple the nations. We are called to reform, to be reformers. We are supposed to be bringing the whole world under the lordship of Christ and everything to God's glory. As Abraham Kuyper acknowledged, there's not one square inch of this earth that God does not say mine. Or to put it in the language of the Apostle Paul, we are to take every thought captive and make it obedient unto Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And so there is a lot of rebuilding to be done. 
And if you want to look to a, a place for encouragement, I encourage you to, in your private time, to read Nehemiah. And look at the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah obviously was found himself in a situation where he was in exile. And the people of God are in exile. And Jerusalem has already been destroyed. The wall has been torn down. The temple has been burned. And Nehemiah gains permission from the king to go back. And he goes back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't even tell everybody among the Jews what his plans are. And he even goes out secretly at night with his own horse. And he spends the night going around the walls of Jerusalem with his horse, looking at all the destruction and the damage that is there and left by the Babylonians. And he gets a, a vision, doesn't he? That the walls are going to be rebuilt. Maybe he was familiar with Jeremiah, and he read the promises of Jeremiah that the people of God would be in captivity for 70 years as a consequence of their disobedience, but what? He would bring them back. And Nehemiah is looking at the calendar, just like, just like Daniel was looking at the calendar, and Daniel realizes, hey, time's up. And what did Daniel do? Daniel prayed all the more. Isn't that interesting? When Daniel realized that it was time for the Jews to go back, he prayed all the more. He didn't pray less, saying, oh, God's got this. He prayed all the more. Nehemiah and Ezra go back. They rebuild. They begin the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the temple and of the wall. And, uh, and it was a spiritual work that they were doing. They recognized it not just to be a, a civic work, but a, a spiritual work that they were dependent upon God and they still had enemies, remember? All the people that were opposing them and trying to stop uh, this work. And there was suffering, but yet they persevered through it all. What are we trying to do? We're trying imperfectly, no doubt. We are trying to build Christ's kingdom on earth. We're trying to build Christian culture within the church and one that influences the community at large one that glorifies God. We are seeking to love our neighbors. We are seeking to encourage them to put their faith in Jesus Christ if they haven't done so already. If they've put their faith in Jesus Christ to encourage them to pursue Christ all the more and to reform their lives and their family's life according to the word of God. That we would together grow in Jesus Christ. That our lives would bear more fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what will it take what will it take? I want to close with just a few thoughts here. What will it take? Number one, because this is a spiritual work, it's going to require a lot of prayer on your part. It's going to require a lot of prayer. We were just looking in Sunday school how Dr. Ryan McGraw says that, did you know that the corporate prayer meeting is more important, he argues, than your private prayer life? I'll just let that be the application in and of itself. If this is going to be a work of God, the Spirit must be involved and the Spirit uses it in, in, uh, our prayers and answers in accordance with those prayers. Number two, there needs to be faithfulness in the church. We're going to have to look at our situation and our own lives, our families, our church, the nation in which we live. We need the wisdom of the men of Issachar. The men of Issachar who said, understood the times, and they knew what to do. We need to be students of this 
present day that historically we're living in, and we need with open Bibles to be looking at what the scriptures say. We cannot just be mere critics of the culture. We need to be rebuilders of the culture. We need to come with humility, but with scripture and scriptural answers to the problems that are confronting us as a nation. We need prayer. We need faithfulness. We need, as I've said, preaching. More preaching, not less preaching. More preaching is needed in the church. Uh, this is the primary way in which the Reformation was advanced. Calvin preached almost every day. Or if he wasn't preaching, somebody else was preaching. Um, preaching was, was a part of it. One historian said that the Reformation was also psalm sung. Psalm sung, meaning the Reformation came about on, on the engine of the, the singing of the psalms. The people of God praising God. You know, the Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. And if we want reformation, if we want to see the nation changed and the culture improved, then we need to take up the singing of God's word and the singing of, of, of faithful hymns. Because God inhabits the praises of his people uh, through that. Well, he also does it through what we're about to do here, and that is coming to the Lord's table. The Lord gives us joy and strength and nourishment in the Lord's Supper. And so let us conclude and then come to the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the large task that is before us. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, um, none of us. But we remember, Lord, how you took Gideon when he was hiding in a wine cellar. And you used him. We think how, Lord, you took a man who was not very articulate and had maybe even a speech impediment and brought him up to deliver your people out of slavery. Lord, we pray, surely we can ask that you might, by grace, use us, help us, because our champion has already done the heavy lifting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.